I sure miss the time where the kids are all here among us and we can dismiss them to children's church and greet one another and shake hands and the thunder of little hoofs going downstairs. Those were great times. And I trust that they're going to be back here with us before too, too long. Well, you don't have the children. All you have is me this morning. And uh, I want you to spend a little bit of time with me by opening your Bible to the letter of Peter to Christians scattered abroad. First Peter. First Peter chapter 2. You have been patient because as we go through uh, expository sermons on the, on the uh, passages of Scripture, sometimes that takes a little bit of time to unpack. And some of those messages can be a little longer. And I always appreciate the patience of the hearers. You know, when you're up on your hind legs talking in public, the time flies by. But for those of you who sit on the pew, you know, it gets a little bit longer. And I want to be mindful of that. I don't know how you do it. You know, when I'm on holidays and I'm sitting in the church, anything more than 15 minutes and I'm squirming like a kindergartner wanting to get out. If I'm wearing a tie, it's choking me. I, I just can't wait to get free. How do you guys do it? I don't know. But uh, this morning, I want to encourage you. We're, we're slowing down just a little bit. We're going to be in two verses, two verses in First Peter chapter 2. The situation, though, is they are packed chock full of God's amazing truth for us. Peter, First Peter, our theme for the book is Peter wrote to those Christians scattered abroad in five Roman provinces or that they were strangers, pilgrims, sojourners, travelers through a world of which they no longer belong. They were born into this world. They belong to the world. The sinful, broken world. We were sinners born and bred because our parents were sinners. Grandparents were sinners. Family tree were sinners all the way back to Adam and Eve. It comes naturally to us. But God, on His great rescue mission, sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, into this world. He took on human flesh. He didn't appear to be human. He was human, fully human, but at the same time, fully God the second person of the triune God, Jesus, fully God, fully human, He took our sins, the sin of humanity, as the only perfect one. And as the Lamb was sacrificed, He paid the price for us on the cross of Calvary. That whoever puts their faith in Christ alone are born again. Peter says we are born into a living hope. We are the beloved children of God. The problem is we no longer fit into this lost and hurting world. Something has changed on the inside. Our citizenship is no longer in Canada or the U.S. or any of the myriad countries. Our citizenship is in heaven. And yet we are called to live a life here that is a witness. A witness of God's truth and His love, which is uh, backed up by the lives we live. This is Peter's theme you are strangers in this world. Well, add to this that we not only have misunderstanding and outright opposition from those who don't yet know Christ, that we're different and they don't like it and they push back on it, but there is spiritual opposition as well, outside and in. Well, that great spiritual warfare on the outside, we understand that. It's written very clearly by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, put on the full armor of God. 
This was our theme for our kids' club all through our fall session. The armor of God, the full armor of God to protect us during this spiritual battle. Paul writes, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's powerful. You are not only a saint called to be God's called out ones, his holy ones, but we're also soldiers in a war. There's a spiritual battle going on. Sometimes when you come home from a long day at work, a dog-eat-dog world, and you're tired and you put your feet up, your family, they ask you, how did it go today? And you tell them, I've called the, I've used that as the title of today's message. You tell them, it's war out there. It is war out there. <laughs> no matter what job we, we go to, we run into that some days. But for Christians, that's the truth. It's war out there. You know, there's far more at stake than, than uh, politics and relationships. There is spiritual, eternal stakes to the lives we all live. Because we are spiritual beings. We're either alive in our spirit through salvation, through knowing Jesus, or we are dead in our sins. There's a spiritual war out there. It's war out there. But as we turn to Peter, he takes that big picture that Paul has given us of spiritual battle in the heavenly realms and he brings it close to home, as close as you get. Because the battle that he talks about, the spiritual warfare, is right here. It's on the inside. It's the battle that we are engaged in every day of our lives. The way Peter puts it, it's the war against your soul. And that's the age-old Christian battle between the flesh and the spirit. Now, if like me, you hold a New International Version as your easy-to-read English translation, whether it be the 1985 or the 2011 edition, they always translate flesh as sinful human nature. Now, that's an interpretation. The translation of the word is flesh, flesh and spirit, our body, the flesh, and us on the inside, the soul, the mind, and the eternal spirit. That's what Scripture reveals to us. The reality, though, is when the Bible does speak about the battle between flesh and spirit, it's not talking about you're battling against your body like an athlete who's trying to batter their body into submission by amazing reps in the gymnasium. It's not talking about the physical flesh. It is talking about the old nature, the sinful you, who you were, and all that you were before you knew Jesus. And He gave you a new heart, a heart of flesh rather than that dead heart of stone. You're alive in Christ. You're a new creation. The old has passed away, unfortunately not far enough away because it sleeps in the same bed with you. It puts on the same clothes as you. The old outlaw heart is still inside. The Apostle Paul says we have a decision to make every day. Paul said, I die daily to self and live to Christ. He has to die to the flesh and that old sinful nature every day. It is a battle. 
And Peter says, the flesh and its schemes, we don't need the help of the devil, but oh, he'll help us to fall whenever possible. That is the battle that we need to be concerned about because it is the war against your soul. Those Greek words are great. The word for spirit is panuma. Like P is silent when we use it for pneumatic drill, anything to do with air, because that's what spirit was. It was like the wind blowing. That's how the ancients understood something you couldn't see, but was very real. That is the panuma, the spirit, is at war with the sarks. That's the Greek word I love. You know the word sarks. When you see an ancient Egyptian coffin, what do we call those things? Sarcophagus. Well, that's the Greek word for flesh eater. Esophagus, like your esophagus you eat with. Sarks, your flesh. You put a body in there and you take out a skeleton. The sarcophagus ate it. It ate the flesh. It's a sarcophagus. Well, the sarks and the panuma are the war of our natures. The new creation, who you are, and the who you once were. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He writes this. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. That's an amazing verse. There's so much to it. How does Peter address us? It's his most common address in First and Second Peter. It's an amazing word. It's agapetoi. Agapetoi. Like agape love. Agapetoi means God's beloved. This translation, dear friends, doesn't come close. It's so much deeper than that. You are God's beloved. There can't be a stronger word for how much God loves you. And that's how Peter addresses you. God's beloved. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Friends, we could almost stop with the first word. Because what can be a greater motivation to live a life pleasing to God than the fact that He loves you? He loved you just as you were. While we were yet His enemies, Christ died for us. His enormous love humbles us, changes us. How can I continue to sin and grieve my Lord who loves me so that should be our great motivation. God's enormous love for us should stop us in our tracks. And yet, we have this amazing ability to have amnesia on command. When you are deciding to live according to the flesh, you suddenly forget what Jesus did for you. I'm amazed we all do it. But Peter tells us, again, beloved Abstain from those desires because they war against your soul. Peter talking, or Paul rather again in Ephesians, talks about how God sees us and how God loves us. He loves us so because God sees us as being in Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, the latter part of verse 4, we read that in love... He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure and will, with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. 
You are in Christ. And when God sees you, He sees you in Christ. And as He loves His Son, so He loves you. You are in Christ and He loves you. Jesus recognized that if we truly love Him, we will want to obey Him. We want to live and walk the paths that He has for us. There's a couple passages Jesus speaks of in John chapter 14. Put them up on the screen and look at both of these. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And in verse 23, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's life lived according to the Spirit rather than the flesh. Living a life of love. It's not a cold, legalistic life following a rule book. It's a life sold out for the love of God and sharing His love with those we meet. This love is amazing. But also, as we continue through this passage, Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, we are reminded of that truth that we're strangers and sojourners. Paul also speaks of that situation. Verse 20 of Philippians 3, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. God will fit us for heaven. We are citizens and we have a home with him. So that's the truth, not only that we are beloved, but we are strangers here because we have something greater, citizenship in heaven. I love that picture, a passport for the kingdom of heaven. My passport used to say the USA. Now I have a passport that says Canada, but this is the passport that we all need. Your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Galatians speaks of that battle, flesh versus spirit. Peter says, abstain from those sinful desires, those desires that war against your soul. Galatians 5, again, the Apostle Paul says in verse 16, so I say, live by the spirit. See, that's the dichotomy, flesh versus spirit. Live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That's that translation of the word flesh. For the sinful nature, the flesh, desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Sometimes Christians wonder why they continue to struggle with sin till the day they go home. Well, until the day we're home in heaven, the flesh remains with us. When we are in the ground, the flesh is there and we're home in heaven. But till then, it's a daily battle. I don't have a picture or the quote of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but the great uh, Christian teacher during World War II once said, he says, put bluntly, every Christian's life can be boiled down to this. The daily struggle where the flesh throws everything it can to destroy your soul every day, every day. The flesh twists everything. All the good things God created, relationship, love, food, sexuality, material things, all of it is taken out of context and twisted by the flesh to make it selfish and sinful. 
And God wants to put everything back in its right place and perspective with God on the throne of our lives. Flesh versus spirit. James says something very similar. When it comes to spiritual war, James writes that first submit yourself to God. Surrender to Him. Make Him the King of your life. Become His subject. The biblical word for that is submission. Making another the priority and seeking to serve and care for them. Their priorities become your priorities. And the reason I talk about submission is that these two brief verses today begin an entire section in 1 Peter that the theme is submission. Oh boy, in these charged political times, my messages are not going to be welcome because we're told to submit to governing authorities. And these are people under the atrocious, inhuman rule of the Romans. The unfair, unjust rule. And yet Peter says, honor the king, obey the governor. He goes on like that. Well, again, it's not popular, but we have to put everything into context. We submit to authorities because our ultimate authority is Jesus. And that's why it begins right here. Submit to God. Refrain from sinful desires. Put God first in your life. As James says in James chapter 4, James says, submit yourselves to God. That's the key to spiritual warfare. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. And he goes on about that. You see, in those short passages, he spells out what it means to submit to God. He speaks of our hands, our actions. He speaks of our minds, our thoughts. All of our life needs to be brought under God's rule, brought into submission to him. And when we submit ourselves to God, the devil has no foothold in our lives. You remember as kids walking on a sidewalk and try not to step on a crack. Well, any dandelion seed who finds that crack can grow a weed in that crack. And that weed grows and it pushes that enormous, powerful concrete right apart. can break it into pieces. Well, when we submit ourselves to God, there are no cracks in your heart. No weak spots in your life. No addictions, no dark secrets for Satan to plant a weed in to try to destroy your life and keep you powerless and fruitless as a child of God. Submission. We'll talk more about that, I guarantee you, in the next few weeks. Secondly, we're doing this, submitting to God for Christ's sake. But for whose benefit is it? It's for the lost. Your life sends a message. You are God's great illustration of the gospel. Your life is a witness. It's either a powerful and a good witness, a positive witness, or it's a negative witness. It causes people to wonder whether God is one that they can trust or causes them to shake their heads that they've run across yet another hypocrite. Your life is sends a message. Peter spells that out in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, when we have submitted to God and refrained from sinful desires, that's negative, taking away something. What do we replace it with? P2, 
Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Peter is saying here, people are watching. People are watching. They're always watching. Many people are watching just so they can criticize. Remember Peter's theme that we are strangers, exiles, foreigners here? It's often, if you've ever traveled internationally, you realize when you get to another country, to another culture, you don't fit in. You're different. I've walked down the streets in Russia, in the Middle East, in Turkey, in countries, and I look around, I think I'm fitting in pretty good. In fact, I like to go online and see what people wear and how... And as soon as you walk down the street, without even opening your mouth and revealing your language, people will stop you and say, Hey, you're from America. <laughs> no, Canadian. Oh, tomato, tomato. You know, like, yeah, yeah, might as well be, you know. But they know almost instantly you don't fit in. There's something different about you. They see it. Now, is that a positive thing or is it a negative thing? Back in the 20th century, there was a novel, and the title became an aphorism about this situation. It, the novel was called The Ugly American. It was a well-meaning American goes abroad to do work, to help people, but they so are culturally insensitive, and they blunder along, and they just, you know, you've been that place. You've been abroad, and you, you see a group of people, and they're loud and obnoxious, and they don't pay attention to the local people around them. It's like they treat them with contempt almost. We don't want to be that way. We don't want to live lives holier than thou where we communicate our contempt for the lost. The lost are our families, our friends, our loved ones, our co-workers, fellow students. These are people that we love and want to see them find life in Jesus as well. We can't be the proverbial ugly Americans of heaven wandering through this world. Peter says here that when people are looking and they see somebody, a foreigner, a new immigrant, somebody, they not only see their differences, but they're very quick to criticize. Oh, those new Canadians, they're this or that. They, they find anything to pick on that's different. They don't like that. And Peter says we're all in that situation. They will criticize Whatever they can, whether they understand it or not. Just a few verses from the weeks ahead from 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at these. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Verse 4.4. 4, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. Oh, we've been there. We've seen that in action. It's not always meant maliciously, but people will often do this. Peter says, expect it because we're different and we don't join in with everything they do. We should stand out. Well, we should, but all too often we don't. Either we indulge in the same things and the same practices, we absorb the culture around us, or we just keep quiet. Keep our head down. Try to sneak through without shining our light out as we should. And I believe this passage is in Peter because Peter took to heart what Jesus said 
at Caesarea Philippi and other places, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that you are a light and you are salt in this world. Remember that passage from Matthew 5? You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. A life that is consistent with the message of Jesus. Your life is a witness. What kind of witness is it? There was a famous speech. It was transcribed. We have it to this day. In 1805, in 1805, there was a missionary from Boston. His name was Jacob Cram. He was representing the Boston Mission Society. And he met with a group of native leaders. And he proposed that they house missionaries on their land so they can teach the truth of God's word to them. And one of the Indian leaders, his name was Red Jacket. He was known by the red coat that he had always worn when they sided with the British during the Revolutionary War. His real name was uh, Sagoyawatha, but he was known as Red Jacket. And he always wore this enormous silver plate on his chest, which was given him as a peace token by General George Washington in 1792. He was a powerful orator. And Jacob Cram and the missionaries, they presented the case for putting missionaries with the Indians in their very villages. But the Indians already had decades of experience with the white men and the broken promises. And they were not so quick to trust. Well, I think that 1805 speech from Buffalo Creek, New York was saved in part because it was a scathing denunciation and rejection of the missionaries. So, of course... The non-Christian world, as it's translated here, the pagans would champion that speech. In fact, just a word about pagans. Peter isn't insulting unbelievers. That Greek word is a very neutral term. Ethnikos. Ethnikos. Ethnic. It literally means the nations. And whenever they use the singular of ethnica, that's Israel the nation of God. Whenever they use the plural, ethnikos, it's the nations. It's the world apart from God. Unbelieving people is what that means. When the NIV translates it pagans, I think of a bunch of hairy-legged women under the moonlight dancing amid the trees, and it's just creepy. Who Neo-pagans? What kind of people are these? And No, it's not what it's talking about at all. <laughs> it's talking about everybody, doctors, lawyers, your neighbors, mechanics, truck drivers, ethnicos, the nations apart from God. These people, these people like Red Jacket's speech because he lays out eloquently, eloquently a number of reasons that he didn't want the missionaries there. Number one, he says, you have a book. You say it's the truth. You say it's God's truth. We can't read the book. We don't have God's Word in our language. And how are we to trust you that you're telling us the truth? Give us the book in our language. Amen, brother. Preach it, Red Jacket. Another thing he says is, he says, we Indians, we fight a lot about a lot of things, he says, because that's what they call themselves, Indians. He says, we fight about a number of things between the tribes. We never fight over religion, the truth of the Great Spirit. 
We have unity there. But we see you white people, Christians, always fighting among themselves. They never agree on anything. We don't have God's word in our language. Christians fight among themselves. And finally, you say you believe this book and it's had an effect on you, but we don't see any change in your lives. And that's one of the last things he said in his 1805 speech. It's recorded on the screen. Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We're acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you have said. But until your actions back up your words, we don't want any part of it. Our lives, friends, are witnesses, whether good or bad. What kind of life can shine God's light? That's a big ask. How are we to live? Well, not by the flesh, not by your own strength. Die to that every day, Paul says, and live by God's Spirit. Have your actions rooted in God's Word. Ask Jesus to live through you. I've often said, not a single one of us can live a Christian life. But Christ wants to live His life through us as we yield and submit ourselves to Him. Submit yourself to God. Submit to Him. Galatians, again, the Apostle Paul writes about a life submitted to God where the Spirit bears rich fruit in the lives of others. We often look at the fruit of the Spirit and think about it in our own lives and in our own churches. But this is the fruit of your life that the nations need, that your non-Christian friends and neighbors need to experience and see through you. Paul writes in Galatians 5, verse 22 and following, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature, the flesh, with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Well, that's good advice. Living by the Spirit means to yield this fruit relationally that others benefit by. And in doing that, we don't judge others. We don't look down our nose at them. Judge what kind of people they are, what kind of believers they are. We keep our eyes on Jesus. And we share His love with the hurting world around us. Friends, that kind of life only comes from daily surrendering your heart and your life to Jesus. We want to sing a closing song that reflects that. And as we do, let's pray together as the worship team joins me on the platform. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for Peter. Lord, that old fisherman, he could be blunt sometime. But he told the truth that we need to hear. Sometimes it steps on our toes that we get caught up, Lord, just living life for ourselves. 
And Peter says that old way of life, that's war against your soul. Instead, set our pride aside and learn to submit to God and for the sake of Christ to one another. And Lord, put others, put God and neighbor before ourselves. Lord, it's something that's easy to say, but it's hard to do. Father, we need Christ to live through us by your Spirit. May your word be on our lips. May your Spirit guide our hands, our hearts. And may the world see Jesus in us. Lord, this is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.